I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we are uh, less than four months away from the election and uh, we continue to see Donald Trump flail in terms of uh, trying to land on a message against his opponent, Joe Biden, flail making a positive case for re-election, and, you know, really descending down more and more, you know, kind of a, a straight out racist appeal, us against them. You know, it's no wonder he retweeted that video where someone shouted out white power. I mean, it's it was not a winning strategy back in 1968, you know, when, when George Wallace uh, tried to deploy it uh, and in the early 70s. And, and I don't think it is now. So I can't divine a political strategy. I mean, he's trying to rally his base and may, maybe his campaign's telling him, listen, there's not a single swing voter available to you. None. You've you know, lost the opportunity. So somehow this all has to come from unregistered folks who are like our MAGA base, and we got to turn the MAGA base out at a level we've never seen in American politics. Maybe that's what the campaign's saying, and so you could divine a strategy. But I think this is more Trump, you know, feeling aggrieved. And, you know, he has yet to make a positive case uh, for his reelection, for his leadership to dig us out of this economic and health hole uh, that we're in. And, you know, it was all over the place on arguments against Biden. So that's what I watch carefully. Uh, some of it in their advertising where, you know, all over uh, battleground states, all over, you know, YouTube and Facebook, um, they are running ads, the Trump campaign saying that Biden's senile and he's out of it and he's too old for the job. So if you live in those battleground states, maybe you've seen it. If you don't, um, you know, there's a whole different campaign happening in those states than's happening in the rest of the country. But, you know, I just think that's not ultimately going to be successful. And at the end of the day, Biden's going to be debating Trump. And if Biden does half, you know, even shows up, you know, and puts together sentences, uh, that will be better than Trump has portrayed him. And I think he'll do obviously a lot more than that. Uh, and, you know, could ultimately dominate Trump, because I think he will be focused on the future, be focused on what people care about, not be focused on kind of the the hits that uh, and lows that Trump likes to employ. Joe Biden continues to staff up uh, in battleground states. There was an announcement this week about his leadership team in Pennsylvania coming on the heels of Arizona and I believe North Carolina. So that's important. Even though we're largely in a virtual campaign, those folks running states and playing important roles in those states, you know, press, digital organizing, um, senior advisors are responsible for getting to the win number in those states. So it's great to see Joe Biden deploy really talented people in to those states, uh, because I always found in presidential campaigns, the state directors and the state staff, I mean, headquarters is basically there to support those people, because they're the ones on the ground running the campaign. Uh, and General Malley Dillon, the campaign manager has that, I think, as, as part of her ethos. And so what'll be great is the Biden campaign nationally will be there to support those uh, state staff. So it's, it's great to see the, 
those folks uh, getting on the ground. You know, I think one thing that should concern us all, you know, when I had Robbie Mook on last week, he talked about this uh, as, go- as good as he feels about the polls and talked about the fact that he does think there's a lot of things different this time than 16 in terms of the solidity of Biden's lead versus Clinton's was, you know, that it's going to be hard for people to vote. There's going to be a lot of confusion out there, a lot of lines. But we see in some of the primaries, even though turnout's been up, you know, reports that seven, eight, nine percent of ballots are uh, getting spoiled, maybe because they don't have a signature. So I think this is going to be important for all of us. Most of the people we know, particularly in these battleground states where you can vote by mail, are going to be voting by mail. And so if it's a first time uh, mail voter, even if it's not, you know, make sure you're talking to them about the steps. You know, they understand exactly how to make their selection on the ballot and what's required to turn it in, where it gets turned in. Can it be turned in in person if that's what they prefer? What, what does the signature need to look like? Uh, and pay attention to that. Some people forget to sign the envelope in states where that's required. So I think what we all have to understand is all of us have a really important job here. Not just to convince people to vote for Biden or to volunteer for Biden, as importantly as those things are, is we got to walk people through the process. We, we don't have a vote to waste here because, again, this could be a very close race. Or if it's not, we want to win by as much margin as possible. But if we're losing 7 8% uh, of vote, uh, this is going to be a close race. So, you know, run through the tape, as they say in track. Uh, you know, don't let up. Make sure people understand exactly how to participate. Uh, and what's clear is a lot of you out there may have some interest in in helping and, and volunteering with local election officials. We're going to need a lot of help on election day and days leading up to that. So in addition to helping campaigns, I think that's something important you can do. So we are four months out, and this seems like it's been a campaign that's gone on for 4,000 years, uh, in part because Trump really never stopped running for office. I mean, he signaled on his inauguration day he was starting his reelection. Unprecedented. But we are in the stretch drive here. But the most important parts of the 2020 campaign uh, have yet to take place. We've got conventions coming up. Joe Biden has to both uh, make the selection and announce uh, his VP, and that person will then take center stage in a really important speech. We have the debates. There'll be big speeches all both candidates will make in the fall about the economy and the coronavirus. So I really wanted to talk to someone who understood the value of speeches and message delivery and uh, not just in 60-minute speeches or 30-minute speeches, but ultimately even a minute and a half debate answers are a form of a mini-speech. So nobody better in the world really than John Favreau. Uh, my old colleague, and many of you, probably most of you, listen to him every week, a couple times a week on Pod Save America. They're a really great podcast that, that he and former Obama colleagues, you know, have started. But John was, you know, Barack Obama's partner on, on most of the most important speeches he gave all the way back to when he was a United States senator. So I really want to talk to John and bring you guys in the room, so to speak, about these big moments and these big speeches, how they're different uh, during a pandemic. Uh, Trump is another um, wild card that we have to take into account as you're preparing for these. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing from John Favreau. Again, nobody better uh, to really uh, talk to us about these big moments coming up, how we should think about them, what the candidates and, and campaigns need to be thinking about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Fabs. John Favreau, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me, Plav. Listen, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about some big moments and speeches coming up. But I just like to start, and obviously I listen to your podcast, as does millions of people around the world. But uh, kind of what's your take on the race as we sit here uh, on July the 8th when we're talking? I mean, I feel 
scared to give you my take on the race <laughs> precisely because it is an optimistic one right now. Like if you could, if you could just see the text chains with like me and, and Pfeiffer and, and Tommy and Rhodes and Cody, we're just like every time one of these polls comes out, we're like someone throws it in the text chain. And then usually Dan finds a way to rain on everyone's parade um, and, and let everyone know that, you know, actually it's, it's going to get closer and we shouldn't be too excited. Um, but even Dan has been having a hard time recently <laughs> trying to find right. some of the dark clouds out there. But look, I mean, I think like sometimes, I mean, you know how these things go. Like sometimes you can overthink sort of the broad contours of a race um, by just sort of, you know, getting your head buried in, in Twitter all day long in the daily news cycle. And when you step back, you have an incumbent president who um, has always been in sort of the low 40s in popularity um, in his approval rating since the beginning. He really hasn't had a big range in approval at all. That was going to set up a very close race with whoever the Democratic nominee was, no matter what. Trump would probably have an advantage because of the Electoral College, because of his, you know, gigantic propaganda machine, because he can command attention like no other president, and because he was likely to raise more money than he knew what to do with. Um, so he had all these things going for him, and which is why it was going to be a really tight race. I do think that the pandemic, his response to the pandemic, which has been catastrophic, his response to the recession, which has been catastrophic, and his response to probably the biggest protests against racism and police brutality we've seen maybe in a century, um, and his catastrophic response to that has really shifted the race against his favor in a big way. And like, could it get close again? Yeah, it probably will. I'm sure the polls will tighten again. As, or at least they they're very they very possibly could who knows uh, as we as we get to the fall but the one thing I've become more confident about is if Trump wins this race it's going to have to be because he somehow made an argument to people about either his leadership on the pandemic or his leadership on the economy it has to be about sort of these big issues that people are grappling with every day and doing the like statue stuff, the Antifa stuff, the I'm going to go after Joe Biden and his son and all the, all the little bullshit, like I don't think that's going to play this time. So it's not that Donald Trump can't win, but if he does win, he's got to win on the big arguments that people are and the big issues that people are wrestling with in their lives. No, I, I agree very much with that. And I really want to talk to you about those big issues and those big arguments because we're less than four months away from election day. People are going to start voting, you know, in three months, but we still have the biggest moments of the campaign left. And, you know, you were intimately involved in these with Barack Obama. I'm sure that they both bring back good memories and painful memories. Um, but I, I, I want to start with um, the announcement that Joe Biden is going to make, you know, in a matter of weeks here about his number two. Uh, you know, you obviously worked with Barack Obama in crafting his speech when he picked Joe Biden back in 08. So as you think about the messages and the arguments um, that you think would be most important to come through in that speech, um, what do you think they'd be? And again, this is sort of agnostic to who he picks. There'll be some uniqueness to who he picks, obviously. But there's probably just some business he has to get done. 
Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's two speeches, right? I mean, there's the business he has to get done in his speech announcing his pick. Right. And then there's sort of the business that the, the pick has to get done about how they define Joe Biden and how they present Joe Biden. And those happen on the same day, right? Within an hour. And that, those, yeah. those happen on the right. same day. I mean, I think for, I really do think it's, it's sort of pick dependent. Um, but it seems like, and this was tr- obviously true of Barack Obama in 2008, um, you know, the, what, what Joe Biden is saying is most important to him is selecting someone that he feels comfortable with um, stepping into the role of the presidency on day one, right? And so for all the like, you know, who's going to help him with this group of voters in this state and all the sort of political prognosticating that goes on, I think people underestimate the importance of, uh, at least to Biden and certainly to Obama, um, selecting someone who you feel comfortable with who, who and really thinking about this person person as a governing pick. So you would imagine that, um, you know, as Joe Biden rolled out this pick, he would talk a lot about that, her credentials, right? And, and her experience and what she can bring to government and her time in government and, and, and sort of her accomplishments and all that. Um, I also do think, I mean, what, what, what has stuck with me is you know when when Joe Biden was being endorsed by um, Kamala Harris and, and Cory Booker and Gretchen Whitmer, I believe he was in Michigan uh, towards the end of the primary. He talked about himself as a bridge to the next generation. It was a very self-aware comment that he said a couple times now that he sees himself as the bridge. And I would imagine that um, you know, and it depends again. It depends on who he picks, but any of these women. I imagine him talking about how his vice president is, you know, represents a nod to the future, towards the future, um, and sort of rep- and what and that could be because of her age. That could be because it's a woman of color. That could be because she's progressive, and young people in this country are more progressive than uh, older generations. So there's a number of ways to sort of make this a nod to the future. But I would bet that he would want to emphasize that as well as sort of uh, her governing credentials, whoever she may be. And then how about her speech? It's so exciting, by the way, we can just say her speech. I know. I was thinking that when I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, really cool. And so her speech, you think, on the flip side, is this to credential Joe Biden as someone who can lead us out of this disaster? Yeah. And look, I mean, and we've been talking about this on, on Pod Save America, and, and everyone's been writing about this, but like sort of the last piece of business that Joe Biden needs to accomplish here is to burnish his economic credentials and to win the economic argument against Donald Trump, um, who still retains a a slight economic advantage in most of the polls that we see right now. And so I think this uh, woman talking about Joe Biden's work leading the Recovery Act effort, Joe Biden's work sort of uh, on the Ebola crisis, um, and sort of credentialing him as someone who can, you know, push America forward and get us out of the mess that we're in. And I would imagine that um, this person can also do a lot of bio, you know, talk about who Joe Biden is, the values he was raised with, the values that drove him into public service, um, the values, you know, that sort of are epitomized by his family as well, um, sort of the loss and the struggle that he's gone through in life uh, and really humanize him in that way. And um, so I would imagine that the, the person would do that too. I actually think just because of the way the race is and I would not do too much anti-Trump stuff from either the Biden perspective or the VP perspective. And I know that 
traditional role of the vice president is to be the attack dog on, on Donald Trump. I just don't know how much uh, how much attacking we need to do, right? <laughs> or at least needs to come from Biden and the VP themselves, um, just because I feel like the news environment sort of does that enough right now. I agree with that. Now, the next big speech after that will be our convention um, uh, and then Trump's. Although, of course, I still think there's a possibility Trump dumps Pence just because he's going to look to change the channel. You do. Well, we'll see. I think it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's tailor-made for him, right? No, it's, Which is it's the governor of South yeah. Dakota or Nikki Haley. We'll see. But John, before we get to our convention and the construction of, of most importantly, Joe Biden's speech, but there's obviously going to be other important speeches uh, there as well. I, your last comment, I agree with, which is, I think, you know, Trump's handling the pandemic. You have to continue to put that in front of people so people understand the full, you know, measure of how badly he's harmed us. Uh, you know, his blatant racism, you know, all the tweeting, all the things. I think that's just, you know, it doesn't take much to keep that in front of people. It does seem to be the one place, and I know you've talked about this on Pod Save, but is the economic argument. Uh, and as you think about the argument that needs to be fought forward, that Joe Biden and his running mate and his cabinet will be the best people to lead the country out of the economic recovery. There's obviously Joe Biden's unique, you know, resume having led the Recovery Act um, uh, in the last recession. Um, there's also, though, obviously the who are you fighting for? Right. That basically this has been corruption. He's going to rebuild the economy. Trump's going to only do it for people like himself at the top and not for working people. But Trump is stronger on some of these things than we like. He wasn't 16. He's still on that measure. So what's your thought about the best way to puncture that? Um, or, or should we? I mean, I guess my question is, A, how much emphasis and B, what's the technique and tactics there? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think... If you're only talking, I mean, the, the Recovery Act stuff and, and what Joe Biden's done in the past is obviously like you need that stuff in there just, just sort of for education purposes because a lot of people just don't know that. People know Joe Biden as Barack Obama's vice president, right? Um, I, I think the main goal here is to sort of win an economic argument that both places Trump on the side of the well-connected and the powerful and the wealthy and that places Joe Biden on the side of um, middle-class Americans and, and those who are striving to get into the middle class. And so I, and I think you have plenty to work with there. I think, you know, even before the pandemic and the recession, you know, talking about Trump's tax cuts uh, for the wealthy talking about, and then once we get into how he handled the pandemic sort of like, some of the, the the more corrupt things he did around the CARES Act, right? Like Jared Kushner's uh, companies getting bailed out and all of his friends' companies getting bailed out. A lot of small businesses couldn't. And, um, so I think there is sort of a mix of Trump both helping uh, helping the wealthy and especially like helping his rich friends. That's an argument that Joe Biden needs to make. And then I think Joe Biden himself, you know, could take a page from, you know, at least rhetorically, and I think as he already is doing substantively as well in policy from like Elizabeth Warren's playbook and, and, and even Bernie Sanders to an extent, right? Like I, I think, and Biden has acknowledged this himself, we, the pandemic and, and the recession right now, I mean, this is, you know, this is a worse economic crisis than we stepped into uh, in 2009. And I think the danger for Biden is to sort of underestimate the fear and the anger and the frustration that's out there for people who cannot go back to work or are being forced to go back to work in unsafe conditions, 
right? And it spans all generations, but especially like imagine what younger people are going through right now. Some of them graduated college in debt. They can't find jobs right now. They don't have health care. They don't know when this is going to be over. And he's got to give people sort of something to hope for. And he's got to point to something. So I do think in a part of the speech is painting a vision of a country post-COVID, post-recession that feels realistic to people, that's like yeah. not too pie in the sky, yeah. and then sort of laying out, and here's how I'm going to actually get that done. Yeah, the realistic thing I think is important because I think people, you know, and you mentioned young people who might have just graduated college or maybe they've left high school and can't find work in the trades, but, you know, people who might be in their 30s now, this is their second, you know, historic recession. And so they're not right. in the mood for um, things that seem unreal. I agree with that. I mean, that's the tough needle to thread. So on the convention, I think sometimes people think it's all about the nominee's speech, and and you were deeply involved both in 8 and 12, you've got to think of it as a bunch of different, you know, acts as part of one play, right? So yeah. you've got many different people, in this case, Joe Biden and Joe Biden's running mate and uh, the Obamas and, you know, lots of other people we don't know who will be part of that. Going to be challenging because it's a different type of a convention. While Joe Biden will be in Milwaukee, um, it's not going to be a, a crowd of 20,000 screaming people. And some of the other speakers, I would, would guess, will do this virtually. But before we get to that challenge, bring people uh, into the room a little bit on the, you know, how to how to think about the convention is not just like Obama's speech and Biden's speech and the VP speech, but yeah. you know, as all of a piece, and and that's super hard to put that together in a way that's coherent and and most importantly interesting to people, uh, especially in a pandemic. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I do not envy the challenge yeah. that the folks organizing the convention have right now. I mean, look, to some extent, it uh, it offers you a little bit more, offers you a chance at a little bit more creativity um, because things are so different and we're, you know, we're not going to have, you know, tens of thousands of people in a, uh, in a convention hall in Milwaukee. So you can, you know, I saw that they were thinking about doing like mini conventions at different uh, or like mini gatherings at different places across the country, right? Like maybe you do something like that. But I mean, I think you want to, you got a couple nights on television. Um, you have an audience that, um, you know, is offered so much content all the time that they don't really have long attention spans, right? So you you don't want like four hours of programming a night where, you know, you're seeing some fucking mayor from somewhere speaking and a, a delegate saying this and giving this speech and yeah, right. it's all the same speech in your head over and over again, right? Like you, I think you want to make it short, tight and tell a story from beginning to end and every speaker should have a piece of that story. So you think about it like, you know, um, maybe Barack Obama talks about, you know, one thing and, and Michelle takes another thing and, and someone talks about Joe Biden's bio and someone talks about Donald Trump and someone talks about the state of the economy. Someone talks about health care, right? Like, yeah, there's a way to sort of give everyone a piece of it. I think on the speakers, like I am for... I'm sure you're the same way here. I'm for fewer, <laughs> yes. fewer speakers. Yeah. Like, let's get Biden, Jill, the Veep. Let's get, obviously, Michelle and Obama. And then let's get like a couple rising young stars in the party, much like Barack Obama was in 2004 at that convention. And then let's cut it. <laughs> you know, I don't think we need a ton of people. Yeah, I agree. Well, as you, you remember back in 08, I mean, we put such a premium on getting, you know, 
just average people from America to speak. Totally. Right? Former, Repu- you know, Republicans for us, independents, nurses. And they were great. They were amazing. But no one, you know, the networks didn't cover them. And so I think we learned by 12, you're basically putting on a three-hour production. Uh, and it, you just got to nail the big pieces. The rest of it is not going to really be consumed by anybody. You'd say outside the hall, and now we don't even have a hall, really. So that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I actually I think there's an opportunity because so much of this is going to be virtual to sort of reframe this convention as not just like a bunch of people speaking at you, but to actually make it sort of like a living, breathing, organizing tool ahead of November and to actually get people around the country to participate in some way, whether you're like registering voters or signing up volunteers. Right. And like I keep thinking about, you know, one of the reasons that we are here right now with a chance to beat Donald Trump is because millions of Americans who've never participated in politics before decided to show up sometime after Trump became elected. And you had the Women's March, and then you had the protests at the um, at the airports for the Muslim ban, you had the Parkland kids, uh, and then you, know, you had people protesting family separation, and then the largest protest of all, with the issue that has been, you know, the biggest sin in America of all, these protests against systemic racism and police brutality, and to somehow showcase the the people in the country who's sort of been leading this movement over the last several years that have brought us here and make that the story more than just Joe Biden or any one politician, which also, by the way, fits with Biden's belief that he is the bridge, right? Like that's the way to show it and not tell it. Like look at the people in the country who are sort of taking charge right now and are going to lead us to a better day. Um, And I'm wondering if there's like, if I were them, I would sort of try to highlight all of those different groups of people who have like showed up and, uh, and participated over the last couple of years. That's a great point. And you know, you're right. Get people deeply involved and further their commitments for what they're going to do you know, right. between August and, and November. So I'm curious on Trump's convention. So um, to <laughs> your point, I mean, the sort of racism and the statues and the Hunter Biden and all that stuff is not going to gain him background with voters he needs to gain ground with. And the question will be, do you think he can help himself? Are we going to look at basically a 2020 version of Pat Buchanan's, you know, convention speech back in 92 that's just full of grievance, in this case, even more blatant racism? Or do you think Trump will try. And and when I say Trump, I think they're in in many respects, their job's even harder than Biden, because they'll also view it as a chance to tell a story. Whether Trump himself will go along with it, I don't know. But you have any uh, sort of guesses on what we're going to see out of the Trump side? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's two versions of Trump. There is the Trump that we saw at the Tulsa rally, where it's just like, you know, open mic night for grievance and he gets to go up there and play the hits and talk about what he's seen on TiVo and what's pissed him off lately, <laughs> you know, and he's <laughs> just just up there saying crazy shit. And then there's the Trump at Rushmore, which is his attempt to read whatever his advisors and speechwriters wrote for him, which is also a very bad version of Trump. Um, but give me, basically, the Rushmore speech was as close to the American Carnage inaugural uh, slash, you know, American Carnage convention speech that was more grievance too in in, uh, 2016 um, as anything else. And I do think if he does that, he also, I mean, like if he does like statues and erasing American history and all this stuff, he's missing the whole fucking point uh, of what like people care about. You know, what he could do is he could do a lot of Joe Biden bashing. He could, he's probably his most 
his most effective thing to do would probably be to really hit Joe Biden as a creature of Washington, right? Like this guy has been there for a while. He hasn't been able to bring about change. Like he did against Hillary pretty effectively. Like he did, exactly. Like I have been able to bring change. I have, of course, it would require some humility and honesty, which we've never heard from him yet. But the way to make people buy that would be to say like, you know, we're not there yet. We're in the middle of this awful pandemic. It's China's fault. Um, you know, that's why they're, the economy's in the shitter as well. But um, I have a plan uh, and, I'm, and I'm fighting hard. And you know that I'm going to fight the swamp harder than this guy who's been here forever. So stick with me. Here's the plan. Here's how we're going to beat this virus. Here's how we're going to pick up the economy again and, uh, and get it back to where it was. And uh, trust me, because I'm the outsider. I may not be a nice guy, but I'm the outsider who can do this and who can fight for you. Like that, that's the closest he can get, I think, to sort of an effective message against Biden. But like, again, that requires a lot of sort of uh, subtlety, humility. Uh, he needs to be nimble. Like, I don't know that he can do that, though. Maybe, you know, maybe they'll strap him to the prompter and, you know, try to get him to do it. Well, what'll be interesting is, you know, his open mic nights are horrendous, you know, but he does draw energy from the crowd. And, you know, it's looking more and more like, um, you know, he's not going to have a crowd or certainly. And so it'll be interesting how it performs. I want to talk about that, John, as you know, back in the Obama years, obviously the most important thing was what Barack Obama said, and oftentimes in partnership with you, the, the what he said, the policy he was pushing, the message he was pushing. But we did spend a lot of time on, you know, where we gave those speeches, you know, Osawatomie, Kansas for the inequality speech, Unity, New Hampshire, uh, when the primary was over in 08, um, Springfield, Illinois, you know, that's harder this time. I'm just curious as a speechwriter what you think about that, which is it seems to me the speeches themselves, the messages themselves are even, I mean, they're always, you know, the most important thing, but they're even more important because you don't, it's going to be harder to have that sort of, that backdrop, that the story you're trying to sell. And also, you know, not having the big crowds, uh, which can be, you know, an important part of, you know, momentum and story in and of itself. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Trump decided he's going to go to like uh, COVID capital of America. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> He's gonna go, gonna go to Florida and do it there. Um, so I don't know what his backdrop is. Look, I think this sort of concerns me about it has for a while, ever since the pandemic started, about you know the Biden convention speech because I always imagined that Trump would say, "Fuck it, I don't care about the pandemic. I want to pack a bunch of people in a stadium anyway because right. I need the crowd." Right. And I do think, like, I, I, I hope they can figure out a way to have some sort of applause for Biden, whether it's, you know, I mean, one way to do it is you could have people watching the speech in different locations and maybe it somehow beams in the applause. You know, it's it's beyond me in, in terms of a technical ability. But um, I think like even over the last couple of months, I think there's a huge difference between when Biden was just at home, uh, one-on-one staring into the camera and over the last two months when Biden has been out and about and he's at the he's he's at these events and there's like, you know, probably 10 people there. It's not like it's a crowd and they're all spaced out. But just like having the flag as the backdrop and having him right. at the podium, like he looks presidential. He comes off well. He sounds better. There's a gravitas to it. So, you know, I do think whatever they do, and I'm sure they're not going to do like a just Joe Biden direct to camera convention speech. But I think having him at an event somewhere, even if it's a safe number of people who are socially distanced is probably important. Um, and then I think in terms of backdrop, this sort of goes to what, um, 
you know what you and I were talking about with like having like little pieces of the country as part of this, right? Like maybe if the convention is in different parts of America in some ways, because everyone's at home, you could go to like historically significant parts of the country, right? To sort of lift up different stories in the country, different historical places or people who are doing the work now. Like I think visually um, you can do some of the work that probably just the setting of the speech won't be able to do. Yeah, or bring people in saying, I'm joined by, you know, John and Emily, you know, and they're, yeah, right, uh, right. Uh, you know, they're a nurse and a teacher and they're just, you know, heroes. I, I think that's right. There's, But I think even in the fall post-convention, it just makes it more challenging, right? Because it's the what you want to say and then you say, what's the best way to say it? Geography, backdrop, people, and that's going to be more challenging for both candidates, not just for Biden. So, John, the debates are not a speech uh, in a traditional sense, but they are the most important message delivery moment in presidential campaign. You were deeply involved in debate prep both in eight and 12. Um, we went five and one, but the one was certainly a doozy that we lost. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll have a minute to, uh, to talk about that scarring experience. But talk about that, which is, you, you know, the things that Joe Biden or Donald Trump will say at their conventions, uh, that Joe Biden will say uh, about his running mate and his running mate will say about them. You've got to find a way to deliver that um, essentially in the first 10 or 15 seconds of your debate answers. So just talk about, and, and you... You know, obviously, Barack Obama always knew what he wanted to say, what policy he wanted to put forward, how he wanted to defend his record, how he wanted to attack his opponent's ideas. But, you know, he struggled, uh, and he'll be the first one to tell you that, with getting that not just into like a minute or a minute and a half, but you really have to start strong on those answers. So just talk about, you know, kind of the flu through line between all the speeches you give in a campaign and what you need to do in a debate. I mean, you know, I struggled with it, too, because at first... It's so know, little time. It's, it's so, so little, little time. time. It and seems phony, you know. It's like, really, this is what we're going to do when we're electing a president? And look, and to, to a writer and to a speechwriter or a storyteller, right, which Obama is, um, there's a natural progression to an answer, right? And he's not only a storyteller, he's a lawyer, right? And so there, right. is, there is like an orderly way to answer a question that sort of builds to a point um, and you have your supporting points along the way and you sort of, you know, you have an introduction and then you have a conclusion and that all has to go out the window uh, in a debate answer because you only have a certain amount of time. And what that forces you to do is to deliver the main point first, which sounds phony <laughs> and sounds forced, which Barack Obama hates sounding like. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is part, which is why we could never get him, um, you know, why he was never comfortable in these debate preps. I remember uh, when we were, it was the debate, it was a debate he actually did pretty well in Iowa at the state fair um, right before the, uh, during the bumper cars. That was like his joke for that, uh, for, for that debate. But I remember sitting around the table and he was just like, this isn't on the level, is it? And we were like, <laughs> no, that's the whole thing you got to understand. These debates are not on the level. They are not actually debates. You're not actually trying to win the argument or persuade people here. You are trying to basically deliver your message to an audience of millions of people watching at home within 30 seconds. And by the way, punch the other guy in the face <laughs> while you're doing it right. too. So you got a lot of business to do in each answer, which is one of the reasons why you do so much debate prep. You do so many mock debates. Um, and it's not easy. 
it is not easy. I would not. I mean, like for all the shit we gave Obama, um, like I couldn't stand up there and do that. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to remind people these are human beings. So yes, uh, once they get on the stage, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'm curious, John, when you think now. So Joe Biden, you know, struggled some in the primary. He got, uh, you know, some of his strongest debates were were towards the end of the primary. Did very well against Sarah Palin back in 08, a really tricky debate, uh, and well against Ryan in 12. Um, So he handled his business there. You have thoughts about, I mean, debating Trump, because we saw what he did with Hillary. And even though the polls said that that Trump lost to Hillary, you know, in each of those debates, um, you know, you still had a huge percentage of the people saying they weren't sure. And I think Trump did get across his message that, hey, you've been there forever and you haven't done anything. Uh, You know, that was probably his most effective message. So- like, how do you prepare for Trump in a debate? I mean, because I assume he's going to be there. How can he not? He's behind. He doesn't want to be called a chicken. Like, he's going to be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he'll be there for sure. I think the way... I mean, I I, I was just talking to Ron Klain about this because it was his line. Remember Ron used to tell Obama before the first debate with Romney, and it turned out to be the wrong advice for that particular debate. <laughs> but I think it's good advice for Biden which is the bigger you are, the harder he falls. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that there are enormous challenges out there right now. We are in, the, we are in a series of crises in this country, probably the biggest crises we've been in, certainly as long as I've been alive, maybe in a century. And those crises are what's on people's minds right now. Donald Trump does not go big. Donald Trump is going to go in there small and angry and try to get under Joe Biden's skin and try to belittle him and try to lure him into um, the swamp with him, right? Like he wants to mud wrestle Joe Biden. And I don't think Joe Biden can like afford to just like let every hit go by, right? Like he's got to punch back for sure. But I think if I were Biden, I would practice continuing to try to pivot back to the issues that are on people's minds right now. So Donald Trump starts yelling about Hunter Biden or whatever. And Joe Biden said, you know what? We have like more than 130,000 Americans dead right now from a horrible disease. We have millions more out of work. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about like what your plan is to do anything about that? Like, where is your plan? And then he starts yelling and yells like, Hey, we've heard all that before. We know we've all seen your Twitter feed. (laughs) We all know what your deal is. We all know that you like to do this. But like, I think the American people are owed each of us seriously talking about how we're going to fix this country at this moment of crisis. And like Donald Trump will never be able to go there. He will never be able to go there. Right. And if Trump comes back the fourth time, you can always go to the corrupt illegal grifting happening in the Trump family. But I agree that's not where you <laughs> where you start. No, well, I mean, I, I do think you have those you have those in your pockets as sort of like if you really need a zinger. But I think it's it's how you deliver it too, right? As sort of like an aside. Like the one I think in the in the debates, in the primary debates, the one thing that Joe Biden probably has to be careful of is he, he gets very defensive, right. right? Or he certainly did in the in the primary when especially when someone attacked his record, because I think Joe Biden thinks I have been a good progressive most of my life, you know, and the fact that there are people now who are more progressive than me and think that I wasn't, you know, it, it bugged him. You could tell. And I think he just has to make sure that he that that 
if I was the Biden camp, to make sure that like they don't let Trump get under his skin by just trying to needle him and get Biden defensive all the time. Well, it's both defensive and you don't want to come across. And I think this was true, not just for Biden, but other elect, you know, current senators. It almost seemed in some of those debates, they were running for reelection instead of making a case for the office they want to hold next. And so, you know, I don't know, like, you know, if you think about these debates, you know, you've got intros and you've got questions from the audience and the panelists. So, you know, Joe Biden will probably have 120 minutes if there's three debates, uh, which is only two hours. As you said, it's a high degree of difficulty. But I think like 2% of that should be about stuff he did back in the day. Like, I just think that yeah. people get that he's experienced. For sure. He's got to make a case. And that, I think, will be hard for him because he's, as most, this is what happened with us in the first debate with Romney is, you know, we gave him bad advice, but he wanted to defend his record. So I'm curious, John, just a little color. So, you know, you um, are pretty open that you can go in dark places in campaigns. You often because the polar coaster gets the best of you. But if I remember correctly, it was after that horrible first debate in 12. We were in Virginia prepping for the second debate, which is going to be on Long Island. Yeah. And I think the first mock debate Obama had was much worse than the terrible first debate he had against Romney. It was just horrible. It was the worst. Uh, and I remember being in a room with you and we were just, just, have you reflected on that at all or thought about it? Is it too painful? Because to me, that was one of the lowest moments of the whole enterprise. Oh, it was the, for sure. For sure. It was the, one of the lowest moments. I mean, it's funny now because I think about low moments in political life and ever since Trump won, they all sort of fade away, <laughs> or at least they look small right. compared to that. Well, yeah, I wasn't talking about like substantively low <laughs> no, moments, but, but for, like just in campaigns. Yeah, in that yeah. campaign, because yeah. he basically said to us, like, I don't think I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. I actually don't think I can do this. And we're like, what? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, there's something in me that can't quite figure out. He's like, I know what you guys are telling me to do. I know intellectually it's the right thing to do. But when I get up there, I just immediately go back into sort of professor mode or defensive mode or, or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I remember you and, and Axe and Ron had like a, a come to Jesus with them sort of uh, the morning before our last uh, prep session, which went much better than the, uh, the previous ones. But that was scary, man. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, I, I'm sure you didn't. I didn't sleep at all that night because I, I did thought, not like, okay, we blew the first debate. We're kind of on probation. We'll be okay. But if we blew two of them, you know, we could have lost that race. And, you know, we're at a point of like the lowest low you can imagine. So, John, um, talk to me a little bit. Uh, and you've been generous with your time. I want to want to end here with you and, and really helpful for folks to sort of think through these big moments in the fall and, and your thoughts on messaging. But you've put out, a, a, you know, you and your colleagues uh, at Crooked Media, I think a remarkable effort, uh, uh, you know, on Vote Save America, which is to ask people who don't live in battleground states, uh, obviously you're encouraging people in battleground states to do everything they can, but to basically adopt a state uh, and get involved in places like North Carolina, Arizona, I chose Pennsylvania. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing uh, in terms of the activity level so far. Yeah, I mean, look, we um, one of the most common questions that we'd always get is, you know, I don't live in a battleground state. I live in a super blue state or a super red state. How can I help? And uh, even before the pandemic hit, we thought it'd be a great idea to actually um, encourage people to adopt one of these the six most competitive states. And by adopt, we mean you sign up and um, we will regularly send you calls to action, things you can do, ways you can volunteer in these states um, between now and November. 
And, um, you know, the, the, one of the first things we did is we had, uh, we partnered with uh, a, a crew called Organizing Together 2020, and we did digital organizing trainings for people. And, you know, uh, everyone did it over Zoom. But like the first night, we do this uh, on a Thursday night, and 16,000 people showed up on a Zoom. Uh, 10,000 because it breaks the Zoom, and so another 6,000 went on YouTube. But um, the, the energy and the enthusiasm there w- was infectious. And, we are now in the process of sort of, you know, pretty soon um, this week or next, we'll start uh, sending out emails with things you can do. And, and, and each of the activities are sort of tailored to the needs of each state and to the people on the ground. So we talk to the local Democratic parties. We talk to the different organizations that are registering voters and like doing really great work in each of these states. And so, um, you know, when, when you sign up for one of these states, you'll know that the actions that you get are sort of approved by... Uh, and needed by all the different folks who have been on the ground doing the work in these states for the long time. Uh, and a lot of the folks who did the organizing and the digital organizing training will feed into, you know, the uh, the larger effort around the Biden campaign too in November. So, um, you know, we've got tens of thousands of people in each state right now signed up, which is amazing, more than we ever thought possible, but there's still time. So uh, votesaveamerica.com, uh, check it out. And you can also donate to Senate races there. Uh, we have different kinds of funds that you can donate to in addition to adopting a state. You can make sure that you're registered to vote. You can get make sure your friends are registered to vote. So it's basically our sort of one-stop shop for everything you need to participate in this election. And we're even going to do something that I know you think is important, Pluff, because you gave us the idea. Um, we'll give you content to share. Because, uh, you know, we live in a world now where you see a bunch of, you know, ads from the other side or bad Facebook memes that your uncle is sending you. And, you know, we need to fight back. And so the best way to do that is to, like, share Joe Biden's five-point job plan when it comes out, right? Share some positive news. Share a funny meme. So we'll have content for people to share as well. It's such an important effort, John. And, you know, you mentioned tens of thousands of people. I mean, for everybody who's currently signed up or who's thinking about signing up, if all of those people just affected one vote, that's like more than the margin Hillary lost by. Last that's right. <laughs> like, it matters. That's right. You know, you, you, we're not talking, there are no miracles in a, in a campaign, whether it's for state representative or president. It's just hard work. And, and all those people just, you know, talking to somebody and convincing them to register or turn out or not vote third party or true swing voter. That's how we win this thing, because I'll end where we started, which is I like you. Um, it's hard to, you know, complain a lot about the state of the race. But, you know, Joe Biden or any Democrat in today's America is going to have a ceiling. It's not 60. Right. <laughs> you know, it's probably in some of these battleground states, 51, 52. And Trump's sitting there in the low 40s in, in most of them. He's going to get some of that vote back. He's going to turn out his people. Um, and, you know, he's going to have, you know, state-sanctioned voter suppression happening, yep. all the disinformation we're going to see from these shores and others. So we got to fight through this. But the effort you guys are putting together. So if you haven't yet, go to votesaveamerica.com. Sign up. Uh, pick a state. Get involved, and, and you can make a difference. Well, John, it was it was a you know real pleasure of my lifetime to be in the foxhole with you through those years. And same here, man. Yeah, man, it's good memories. But you you're continuing to fight out there and giving people good advice and motivation for how to stay involved. And really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on. It was fun chatting with you. Well, I could talk to John Favreau all day long about speeches and messaging and old war stories. So he was great to spend some time with us. And um, hopefully you'll get some value um, from what John talked about. Um, I thought he had some really keen insights, both in terms of, you know, this is a different convention, not just because it's going to be largely virtual, 
um, but you're going to not have a big crowd. It's happening in a pandemic and an economic catastrophe. So it's going to be harder to grab people's attention. So I think uh, John's, um, I think, suggesting that less is more here and, and don't try and nail 50 different speeches or 100 different people during those three or four days. But you know, to really focus on the four or five, they're going to make a big difference that people might consume uh, either directly, you know, in real time or, or afterwards. So uh, I thought that was good advice. Uh, really interesting to hear him talk about Donald Trump, too. And I think to me, that's going to be one of the more interesting questions of the next uh, four months will be in that convention speech, which Trump shows up? Does he make a positive case for reelection? Does he really focus on the economy? What's his argument against Joe Biden? Has he settled on one? I think that's going to be fascinating. And, and you know, as our convention uh, will be not just one speech, it's a series of speeches that need to tell a story. So will the Trump convention. But I think it's particularly challenging because Trump is not a controllable individual. He doesn't really listen to people. So no matter what his campaign tells him, uh, he might take it in a different direction. So I think that's going to be fascinating to watch. So I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing from John Favreau. Really, I, I thought some great thoughts and, and kind of a good guide uh, to get us ready for the next few weeks and months of the campaign. And look forward to being with all of you next week on Campaign HQ.